Welcome to Support Heroes by Kaizo, the number one source of customer support insights in the world of audio. I'm your host, Sebastian. Each week on the show, we'll be having insightful conversations with customer support professionals from some of the most well-known and exciting companies around the world. If you're looking to forward your career in customer support, this is the place to learn from those who have succeeded in doing exactly that. Our superstar guests are at the ready to provide you the lessons they learned from many years on the front line of customer support. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy yet another episode of Support Heroes by Kaizo. Charlotte, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to see you. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Pleasure to be here, uh, Sebastian. Thank you for having me. As we were just mentioning to British people at the beginning of the show, we have to complain about the weather, right? It's cold, mm-hmm. it's grey here in Leeds. What about uh, where you are? Well, um, I live a bit further south than you in the UK, but that doesn't mean we haven't had snow. We had snow a couple of days ago. It hung around for two days, which is about as, as good as it gets down here. we're very enthusiastic about the snow right until it until it lasts just a little bit too long once you've had your fun it's done the minute that the trains gets cancelled is the minute the entirety of the uk starts losing their mind and the funny thing is that we we get snow a fair amount but every single year the transport infrastructure is not prepared so yeah it's funny like i grew up in the countryside so when the country lanes kind of freeze over it's so funny to watch people get stuck like in these various places in the farm, they literally have to go out and call the farmers and ask them to get their tractors to pull them out of the ditches they get stuck in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and we were we were just talking about uh, how subjective weather is as a phenomenon before we came mm. on air, right? And uh, I just I just think that you know, I mean, I've had conversations with Swedish people who say this is not snow. Like if, if you don't need chains <laughs> on the car tires, it's not snow. <laughs> yeah, a whole yeah. other level, right? Yeah, yeah. Or you said you had a colleague in Siberia, right? Yeah, and there you ask this guy if he's got good weather and it's like minus whatever knows and he's just sitting there in, in a t-shirt, not caring. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, one of my team is in Siberia. Minus 15 it was, I think, a couple of days ago. Um, and that was relatively balmy for this time of year for him. <laughs> I'm just shaking my head. Is this too much? That's like minus ridiculous, seriously, honestly. Minus ridiculous. I, I don't know how they do it. Yeah. yeah. Um, good so eating, Charlotte, that's all I can say. Yeah, you need good heating and good insulation in Siberia, that's for sure. Otherwise, you're in a you're in a bad spot. Yeah. Um, so, Charlotte, the way we usually like to start the show is I have the guest introduce themselves and tell us a little bit about themselves. Because I mean, you can do a much better job of introducing yourself than I can. So, um, yeah, please, Charlotte, where did you come from? Uh, how did you get into support? Oh, that's a long, long story. Um, maybe we can unpack some of that. We've got time, right? Um. So I'm Charlotte Ward. Uh, I live, as I mentioned, in the south of England, about six miles outside Windsor. Um, And uh, I'm head of support at Snowplow. Snowplow is a data delivery platform that collects and operationalizes data at scale. So we empower data teams to rise above the difficulties of data delivery and organization, really helping them focus on their data journey. Well, I think anyone who deals with data knows how hard it's, it is to find data scientists and build that infrastructure in a way that makes sense. So I definitely see where that, where that uh, market niche comes from. And then how did you get into support? I've been in support forever. It feels like a million years. Um, I, <laughs> I'm not really even joking, but it's been an enjoyable million years if I, if, mm. if I have to, if I have to uh, think of it in terms of time. It, I, I've enjoyed every minute of it. I, 
I did a technical degree. I did a computing degree back in, in the dark mm -hmm. ages. And um, I, uh, I did one of those, what I would call, what we would call in the UK a sandwich course, where you do a couple of mm -hmm. years, then you go out and do a placement and you come back and do the final year. Um, uh, so I did that sandwich course. And in that, in that um, interim year, um, I ended up doing on-site support with Exxon, Exxon Chemical, mm -hmm. the branch of the, the owner of Esso, the petroleum company. And um, so I was doing on-site support, supporting a very proprietary um, piece of software that managed their chemical inventory. Kind of fascinating, right. fascinating site to sit on, to sit on and be around all these chemists and uh, and people hefting barrels around and getting to walk around mm. engine test beds and things like that. But my job was just in this little sad little office <laughs> on one corner of the site, <laughs> shared with another person, um, basically just maintaining data in this in this right. application um, and improving the application over the year that I was there. And that was technical support back then, back in the day. Um, and I realized then that was kind of what I wanted to do. I went back and finished the final year of my degree. And um, as I started to look around for graduate placements, I came across a support role at Oracle, frontline support for their mm -hmm. database um, server. Uh, and it was about a mile and a half from my house. <laughs> so I, I got very lucky. Uh, and, and that was it. That was it. I was it. I was in support and I've been in support ever since. Mm. And I think something that we mentioned, uh, you know, before we came on air was that you very much started in that technical role, right? And you really enjoyed the technical problem solving aspect. What was it about technical sort of problem solving within support that really kind of made it work for you because there's lots of other ways you can apply those technical skills um because you actually mentioned it it wasn't really the fact that you were talking to people that wasn't really the thing that kind of yeah took yeah, you to it which yeah, is interesting exactly i think i think that um i think i've grown into being more of a people person over the years right. as i've matured i i was painfully shy in my youth um Mm -hmm. And uh, but I did have this this absolute love of of technical work. Um, but also, I liked the idea of solving problems in a very finite way. And I think that was kind of looking back. That's what I enjoyed doing. Like whenever I was doing anything, right. I was always looking for a problem to solve. So I was always kind of I had right. this voracious appetite for the next problem, the next problem, the next problem. And what I realized mm -hmm. in that placement year was that that's what support was. It was a day full of problems, which, yeah. <laughs> which is not something. Which sounds like hell for some people. <laughs> it wouldn't appeal to most people, but what you get out of a day full of problems, if you're solving them, is also a day full of little wins. And yeah. I, I really loved that. And because I was, I was, I was a tech head, I just didn't want to be, mm -hmm. I didn't want to be wrangling one problem for three weeks. I loved right. the, the, the problem solve, the problem solve, the problem solve that support gave you. Um, mm -hmm. I loved, I, I was at Oracle for three and a half years. I loved doing that. I mean, I was taking in those early days, it was a real old fashioned technical support call center. So all of our support came in really through phone and um, it was 20, 20 plus calls a day, um, 20 opportunities mm. to solve a problem. I mean, that was mm. to solve a technical problem, no less. Um, and that was just heaven to me at the time. Um, and I, as I said to you the other day, I, I could not imagine 
doing anything other than solving technical problems all day. Uh, and right. I, I did. I, I went from Oracle to a couple of other software companies, and uh, mm -hmm. and and that was my that was my sort of SOP for a while, right? <laughs> for quite a few right. years. Um, but in and around that, I and it really started very early on um, at Oracle. Um, I came to realize that there were other ways to solve problems that I could fix processes mm -hmm. and I could fix tools and strategies and there were all these other things to fix um and it was so just, many things to fix so many things to fix just uh, i i wrote about it once i kind of have a solution addiction i think i just like love fixing things <laughs> um, i know there's a bunch of people who know exactly what you mean right now you know they're yeah. the fixers yeah exactly exactly um and and so i when when i kind of when I wasn't talking to customers, I was always looking around for other things to do, other things to fix. And, uh, and those things, as I sat at Oracle and in those subsequent software houses, were those things were by and large quite operational because support is a very operational part of the business. It's very, very, fo it's, it, it, it's bread and butter. It, it, it runs right. on operations. It runs on data. It runs on process and it runs on tools. And, Right. All of these things are just that was where I spent my spare time. Mm -hmm. And so and so I think just what happened over the years, given that in those early days, I just I looked at my manager. I won't tell you who it was. I had several of them. Let's say there were several of them. I looked at all of my managers over the years, um, those early few years, and I thought, I don't really know what you do all day. <laughs> I guess <laughs> I guess a lot of us think oh. like that about our leaders, right? Yeah. What, what, whatever walk of life. But I didn't really know what they did all day. I really had mm -hmm. no clue. Um, and so I, it was the running joke with, with most of us techies back then that you just wouldn't want to be a manager. Why on earth? Where's the fun in that? Just sitting around in that corner office all day, just, you know, maybe tapping a couple of things on a computer and kind of watching mm. the world go by. While we were doing the real work, <laughs> mm. the really interesting work, um, mm. and so I couldn't have imagined a world. It 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 was so not on my my path to mm. go into leadership. It was just not something I was interested in, or most of my peers were interested in at the time. We just we right. were techies, we were engineers, mm -hmm. you know, um, mm -hmm. and uh, and so I think what happened now that I look back and I don't think I really realized it at the time was that my perception of what it meant to do the business of support rather than provide the support yes was also an opportunity for problem solving and for fixing and helping things yeah. grow in different ways and um and it was a slow erosion of my set of beliefs that that technology uh, to be so centered on the tech was what mm -hmm. I wanted to do. Um, right. And, and that well, there were two things I wanted to dig into just quickly before yeah. we kind of move on. And, and those two things were with us. And you can choose wherever you want to start. Because um, I think particularly what we see with technical support is it is incredibly technical. Mm. And the other thing that's quite exciting, I think, for, for people in that role is that you're kind of under the gun in a way. You know, you can go into technical roles where 
exactly as you said, you're kind of solving one problem over the course of three weeks, which is a very comfortable place to be in. You know, maybe you'll have a lot of pressure from upper management, but mm. at the end of the day, you're kind of taking it at your own pace in a in certain sense. But um, doing that in a support role is like you're, you're under the gun in that moment. That person needs your help. You need to come up with that solution right there. And there's a kind of thrill to that, right? And I think something that I've really gathered talking to people within support and particularly with these technical roles is that there are some serious, serious skills that you need to um, amass in order to do that correctly and to do it really well. And that those skills are actually quite transferable. But also the, the point that I wanted to sound off on is that I think quite often with, with technical people, um, they do have this kind of sense of, uh, how should I say, disillusionment with like the social problem. Because those technical problems are one they can really kind of bite into. And, and perhaps the, the social problems and the organizational problems are one that maybe just aren't quite as sexy to them. Um, but it's something that I found very interesting and compelling, and I'm sure something we'll talk about later, is that you can grow into that role. And the other thing that I found really interesting is that you described yourself as being very shy, very introverted. Mm. And nonetheless, you had success and support. And, and maybe it kind of helped you get out of your shell in a way. Um, so choose whichever one you want to bite into. But I did definitely find those in things interesting when I first heard your story. I think there was like 15 things there that I could unpack, right? Okay. <laughs> they usually are. <laughs> You're just like me when I'm interviewing. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. And this and this and this and this and this are interesting. And and mm. I, yeah, so um, I'll choose. Uh, well, I guess I guess the last thing, the last thing first, the, the fact that I was, I, I really was, I'm still an introvert, you know, I am. Mm -hmm. I still appreciate time alone. I still appreciate time to just kind of go into my own head and think mm -hmm. about stuff and process stuff and like re-energize. And, and um, I think maybe I, I, I was shy, but and I've, I've learned at this time in my life to separate shyness from introversion, you know. I don't have to be mm. shy. That's something I can get over introversion is who I am. <laughs> um, yeah, pretty good point. Pretty yeah, good point. Yeah. And, uh, and so I was both as a youngster. Um, mm. And I think what helped me in those early years was I was driven by the tech, as I said, I was driven by mm. the problem solving habit. Um, and uh, habit. <laughs> habit, I know. It really is yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, the, uh, so I was driven by that, but, um, what I loved about it was that every day was different. Every problem was different. And right. that did mean you had to be highly reactive, but it also meant back then you definitely had to talk to people because there was no mm -hmm. chat support. There was, you know, there was no Slack or anything. It was all on the phone. So I had to talk to people. I learned to talk to people and I learned mm -hmm. a lot about myself during those years as well. I learned that I was, I don't know where it comes from, but may maybe it just comes from kind of, I, do you know what? Maybe I think I do know where it comes from. So I'll tell you what it is first, and then I'll tell you where I think it comes from. The thing that mm -hmm. I learned quite quickly, really quickly, is that I'm calm in a crisis. Right. Um, I can, I will, I, 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 you know, like seriously burning buildings. And somebody, like many, many years later, this is just a slight little interesting aside. Many years later, I was applying for a job and I went, I went through one of these personality tests as part of the interview <laughs> process. Um, yeah. And uh, when I was called back in for a subsequent interview, they had the results of my personality test <laughs> in front of them. <laughs> and one of the interviewers said, this is really interesting. This isn't a trait we see very often, but 
under stress, you get calmer. (laughs) 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 And I thought, yeah, that sounds about right. And, and um, yeah, I, I, so I think where that comes from is kind of something around like a, a practice of like believing that I can solve things. It's like a mindset, like, And and I think that's kind of where that calmness comes from. That kind of mm-hmm. even though it's a hyperreactive role, even though it can be very stressful, I think I'm not actually going to get to the solution unless I can approach it somewhat rationally. And I think right. that's where it comes from. Also um, emotional regulation, right? Because if you have a really bad ticket that goes really badly and maybe they were very unpleasant to you, you have to kind of compartmentalize and not let that affect your confidence and go into the next call exuding confidence for the customer because something I actually said to to a friend of mine she was going to defend her thesis and I said to her it doesn't matter how uh, unconfident you feel confidence is all about the way you portray yourself so you absolutely doesn't matter how bad you feel if you portray yourself with confidence those around you will say oh she was very confident even if you uh, you know feel really really bad yeah, and it's a it's a fine line to tread, and it's something I it's a line I do occasionally step on the wrong side of even now. You know, we all do. Yeah, <laughs> kind of straying into slight cockiness, perhaps. And for for any listeners out there for whom I have kind of exhibited a level of cockiness, I apologise. It's entirely unintentional. <laughs> Not true, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, that uh, you know when when you're picking up the phone and it, you know it's going to be another problem. That's the only reason customers right. call you is is because they're already in a point of pain. Um, mm-hmm. Then, you know, you have to be able to approach it. And I think I'm not special in this respect. Every support person I know who's good at the job, let's say, every mm-hmm. support person I know is good at that separation or that compartmentalization or at the very least kind of accepts that it doesn't define them. It's just the job. Yes. It's just the moment. Yes. Um, yes. And I think that whether you're like d- doing deeply technical support or whether you're, you know, taking kind of back ill-fitting shoes or something, mm-hmm. most support people I know operate in that space when they're in the in the support zone. Agreed. Agreed. And honestly, if we compare it to sort of other departments, perhaps that are more commonly referred to with that air of prestige, like sales, that's something that you learn in sales. And it's, it's the same skill, mm-hmm. essentially. It's just in, in sales, you compartmentalize because it's about success and driving your numbers mm. and you can't let, you know, yesterday's failures cause today's failures. And it's exactly the same thing for support. But for some reason, it's just not quite as often quoted. And I think it's, it's I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just that selling is, is more sexy and selling has like this better PR slash marketing push behind it. I'm not sure. Um, Jordan Belford probably has something to answer for it. But um, nonetheless, I think the skills are there, right? And I think also the thing that really, really stands out to me um, and the thing that I find quite hard to, to kind of swallow is that the social skills that one learns with support, not only to put yourself out there, which is the same thing for sales, but something that sales doesn't necessarily have is to, to take negativity, to take abrasion, to meet it with compassion and kindness, and then to negate it and oftentimes completely disarm the person who's being unpleasant or forceful, which, you know, something, you know, anyone who worked in the service industry knows exactly what I'm talking about. It's something that's very, very important in life. Um, But this is something that really helps in management, because when you are managing people, those soft skills and those social skills become the currency of success. And, Mm -hmm. you know, something that I think is really, really interesting and compelling and uh, 
somewhat of a segue into my next question is you know you you identified yourself that you what you didn't have that social persuasion you know and that it wasn't something that you were really really into but then you started seeing the shall i say opportunities to kind of problem solve in the social space um and then kind of got pulled towards management you can use different words but um yeah, yeah. i'm 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 yeah. i guess you know what i'm getting at <laughs> yeah yeah i i i think it was i think it was um I mean that's that makes it almost sound quite the plan. <laughs> that, yeah. that, that that I saw these opportunities. If only I could learn to do that thing, then I would definitely achieve all my heart's desire. Right. I saw you wanted <laughs> to, to be jump in, so I didn't want to put words in your mouth. <laughs> um, yeah. Um. I I think it was. Um. And you know, I I think if I, I think that it's something like people management is not easy. Like however good right. however naturally it comes and and i didn't come to this from a natural point of view i'm and i still consider like i i still consider that most of my um i still consider that the thing that i find i tend towards if that makes sense on an average day mm -hmm. is look is looking at the operations right um but i've learned i hope and again i can only hope that by and large, I do a as reasonable a job as anyone. I, I I think that, you know, the the management, the people management side of it is, um, a set of skills that I have learned and I'm still learning. Right, right. You know, and I think the thing that I found cool was that support kind of set you on that path. Maybe mm -hmm. despite you not necessarily wanting to move in that path, you kind of discovered it. And I guess that's what I was trying to get at. You know, it's that you are an example of someone who kind of identified yourself as someone who didn't really want to move into that management role and I think for quite a lot of people that's how their careers progress right you you progress in your career by by taking people on and, and managing them and I think something that is cool and interesting is that despite you not wanting to go in that direction you were taught the skills and you felt as though you could do it so mm. what was what was the stage really where you felt confident and comfortable enough to step out of the I'm going to solve these problems I'm going to solve these tickets to I'm actually going to take ownership of, of this group of people and I'm going to help them and I'm going to manage them. Um, it was, it was really, I think it, it was born of like feeling the pain because I was on the front right. line and realizing that all of these other things that I was interested in doing, all of these other problems, the operational, the tooling, et cetera. Um, gave me an understanding of what made it hard to be on the front line. Right. Um, and I think that in just going, like poking around quite often where I wasn't wanted operationally, uh, you know, and kind of being put back on the front line when really what I wanted to do was make life on the front line better. That's That's the biggest part of the reason for kind of seeing all of those operational problems or all, all of the, the, the wider picture, the business of support and wanting to solve right. that in inverted quotes is, um, is, is because you know that fundamentally everything you do, every process you shape, every tool you trial has an effect on what, on people's experience on the front line. Um, right. And so I, I kind of came to a point where I realized that, First of all, 
leading the team was a great way to shape that work mm -hmm. um, just purely operationally. And that secondly, I could help the team and help the individuals on the team to success, to a better day mm -hmm. um, by leading the team. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? It does, definitely. And I, honestly, I don't find it very surprising because empathy is one of those things that just runs through our industry by definition, right? And if I'm hearing what you're saying, it's the the empathy, both for yourself and your own experience and the experience of your colleagues that really said, hey, you know, I need to step up and, and help myself and help these people because there's some preventable pain going on and, mm. and I want to be the one to solve it. So um, as the problem solving addict, I can definitely understand and relate as to, to how you, you transitioned there. So where did this where did this transition take place and where were you in your career just generally kind of give us the context? So I, as I said, I was at Oracle for three and a half years. During that time, I did a bit of training and I did some onboarding. So I'd already started to help people come into the front line. Right. Um, and then I uh, moved from there to a company called Siebel. They were a CRM company. And I, I took on like a bit of product leadership there. Um, mm -hmm. And then after that, I moved to see beyond a kind of uh, EIM company, um, pre a kind of precursor to Zapier kind of software, right? I think. Um, mm -hmm. that, that was back to the front lines, and I missed it. I missed just the little snippets of leadership that I'd had. Um, and when I left there, um, the next role that I stepped into was a tiny sort of startup they were starting up their uk operations for a relatively small software company called blue martini it was e-commerce software i joined right. there in 2003 mm -hmm, i think and uh, and i was there very few months before um we grew the team lead of that like little embryonic team that i joined and i was still doing frontline support work for uh, in moved on, moved on to um, go out and talk to prospects. <laughs> um, and so the team lead role mm. became vacant. And at that point, I thought this, like, I didn't, like, it wasn't like really Machiavelli and it wasn't like, this is my chance. But in the, <laughs> but, <laughs> but on the other hand, this was my chance. Time. My time has come. I thought <laughs> yeah. this team lead role was vacant and I had all this support experience. I'd been at all these companies. I'd, 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 I would, I just had such a wide range of experience and, and from a, a relatively good range of like technologies and, 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 but all of like a relatively broad range of like different operational styles as well. And, uh, right. and so this was my moment. <laughs> I just, I just kind of said to the, uh, to my manager at the time, quite like to do that. <laughs> I'd quite like that team lead role. Right. Uh, and it was almost as simple as that. Um, he, yeah. he said, well, yeah, um, I, <laughs> if, there's, if there's anyone who, you know, is basically still trying to get their fingers in all the pies where they're probably not welcome. Like, <laughs> like I, was, mm. I was already like just still, what can I fix? What can I fix everywhere? <laughs> uh, and that was my, yeah. so that, that, that was my first official step up the ladder, if you like. I hate that term, but mm -hmm. that was my step away in any capacity away from the front line in a recognized way. Everything right. I'd done up to that point was entirely like ad hoc, fill the need. Um, and mm -hmm. so 
it was a you know it was your standard kind of forty percent um, team lead, sixty percent frontline mix. Um, then my manager mm-hmm. left, and I said to the director, "I said, I'd quite like to do that." My time. <laughs> my time <Yeah>. has come. <laughs> it was, and it was really fast. I would say between, um, well, I, it was less than a year between team lead to manager. Right. Oh wow. Um, because my manager moved on and I just said, I would quite like to do that. (laughs) The director didn't, wasn't quite such an easy transition as up to team lead. I had to make a little bit of a case for it, but, but I made a case, you know, I said, this is kind of, you know, Mm. this is what I've been doing. This is what my vision is. Um, and he said, okay then. (laughs) Um, so, uh, Mm. uh, I got lucky. I got, you know, I got just the right amount of confidence at the right time. I had been interfering in mm. enough stuff by then that it seemed to them something of a natural transition. You're interfering enough now. Take some responsibility. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so that was it. So, so, so that was it. 2004. Um, so mm. yeah. Uh, so that was. I'd been on the front line. Well, I, I really will give away how, how many millions of years ago I graduated, but I, I'd been on the front line about nine nine years by then. Right. So if you put yourself in the shoes of that Charlotte from 2004, maybe a few months into the, the senior management role, um, up from a team lead, what were the things that really stood out to you as being differences, both in your transition from an agent to a team lead, an agent admittedly who was taking on problem solving and operation stuff on the side? Um, what was the, the transition there like? And then secondly, from, from team lead to manager, because I think, you know, I, I, what I would like to do is to kind of give people an idea and a roadmap of, of what that progression would look like. And maybe if someone's listening to this and they think, hey, I never thought of myself as a manager, I never thought I would want to be a head of support, but I like support and I want to stay in the industry, maybe they can think about what they need to work on. Hmm. The, I, think the, I think this is going to vary, vary organization to organization, right? But for me back then, Very good point. yeah, uh, for, for me back then, transition from agent frontline engineer um there is something in the industry that that by just as a smaller side that um and i think this mm-hmm. is okay but i don't sound too peak too kind of missish about it but um engineers and really technical support people in my experience don't take entirely kindly to being called agents and i don't I, and i think that is I think that's a bit of a disservice to agents, if I'm honest. But but I do get also that they want the the kind mm. of the separation that this is highly technical, you know. Um, mm. So I just think that's kind of an interesting little aside. So I was, I mean, back then, yeah, I think back then my job title as I transitioned from frontline to team lead, I think it was consultant. So mm-hmm. um, so as I so, I guess where I'm going with this is that. Um, as I made that transition, first of all, this is going to be different, so very different organization to organization, because I think that um, it being a very technical role, I I, I was mm. in the tooling quite a lot as a kind of natural way of being. Right. So, which maybe in a in a more traditional kind of customer care, customer service environment, you might not be, you might not have a great deal right. of opportunity for that level of exposure. Whereas I was just like digging around um understood so as i made that transition the in that organization the the 
biggest key differentiator between being frontline support consultant to <laughs> to team lead was time. Um, mm. I, team lead in that environment did not mean people manager. It meant the operational side, which maybe was why mm -hmm. I found that transition so easy and maybe why I was given that role <laughs> in such mm -hmm. a kind of easy way. I wasn't made to go through an arduous application process or anything. Um, it meant being given 40% to shape the work is ultimately what it meant. Um, so I was not doing any people management. My, Although I was leading the team, I was leading the team functionally, not from a line manager point of view. Understood. Which changed once I took on that manager role, because then obviously I do have, although, the, although these people were on my team, suddenly they are, I am the, responsible for their line management in that. You need to lead them. Management role. Yeah. Um, and so that was the biggest differentiator, I think, between like the transition from like frontline to team lead and then team lead to manager. Um, so you take, you just take on an extra layer each time. You have to allocate more time to it. Um, and it quite quickly became evident that I was not really going to get a great deal of time to do frontline work when I was also managing operations and people. Makes sense. How did you feel about that? I think I was okay with it. I, and wow, I, I find that surprising. Yeah, I know. And I think... Maybe the time had come. My time had come, right? <laughs> I think that, yeah, I think, I think that somewhere along those last couple of years, despite all that early bluster about not wanting to be a manager and staying techie all my life, I think mm -hmm. I've kind of become a little bit disillusioned with the technical side as well. I still, mm. felt, I still felt very capable of it, and I still do. I just don't do it. <laughs> and yeah. that's a, um, I mean, that will get many a wry smile from my team now when, when I, claim, <laughs> I claim to be capable of it, but I just don't do it. Um, <laughs> but um, Like the sportsman that's retired. It's like, I can still hang with you guys. Still, and the yeah. team is like, yeah, sure, coach. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, the, the difference is, of course, I don't possess their skill set. So really, really realistically, mm. I couldn't do their jobs. But I, mm. I sort of somewhere harbor, and maybe it's a bit fanciful, but I still kind of, I, I still see myself as technical. I like a lot of support, technical support people. I'm the most technical person in my family, even though right. I haven't been on the front line <laughs> for a lot of years. I'm still the most technical person. I'm still very, mm -hmm. I still figure out things. I still, you know, I just don't do any, you know, Python or anything. <laughs> give, give me a few weeks and an incentive and I might, I might, I just don't have the incentive anymore because I don't have the desire to right. le learn things to that depth anymore. Um, so, um, yeah, I think, I think I was okay with it. That kind of dis disillusion with the technical side had set in and it wasn't disillusion, wasn't disillusion with support and it wasn't disillusion with problem solving. I think I got a bit bored. Hmm. Makes sense. I mean, people change, right? Mm. Especially over their lives and over their careers. And I think one of the skills in kind of maturing with grace is understanding how one's personality and interests, et cetera, are shifting and adjusting. Um, so something else I wanted to ask, actually, now that we've kind of addressed it a few times is this distinction between technical support and kind of this classical like customer service provider. Um, 
so maybe a good way to start this conversation would be thus. Do you think it's easier to teach someone who's very technical how to give good service? Or do you think it's easier to take someone who has a service oriented personality and teach them how to be technical, assuming that they have the capabilities for problem solving, etc.? Mm. I've I've written about this and hosted whole podcasts myself on this actually. I, I think mm -hmm. I think that you can teach, you can coach behaviors. Right. I don't think you can coach personalities. Right. So on the on the service side, I don't think you could teach an absolute sociopath <laughs> how to <re> how <laughs> to relate to other people uh. <laughs> and how to how to get somebody to the, you know that doesn't make to, me to... <laughs> it's the thought of talking to this like stone-faced killer on the other end of the phone <laughs> yeah. Yeah. there are yeah. limits even, even to my coaching skills right yeah <laughs> but, but yeah so i think i think that i think i think first of all i i think it's a bit chicken and egg do you want mm. to get into support because you want to talk to people or or, or the or you know even if it's not that direct, because it wasn't that direct for me, as I said, I didn't get into support because I wanted to talk to people. But, but on the other hand, I was able to talk to people. Right. <laughs> so I probably wouldn't have lasted long if I had been an absolute sociopath. Right? <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> um, probably true. I'm making myself giggle now. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So on the can you coach empathy, it, it, mm. like taking the character traits. I don't think you can. Right. I think I think that that's not to say that you can't develop and you can't practice. And and I'm speaking not just to like leaders out there, but like everyone, mm. everyone, all of our listeners, um, whether they're you know on the front line or whether they're leading people on the front line or if they've if they happen to have stumbled across us by accident. I, I don't think that you can. I really don't think you can. Find empathy where there is none. Mm. But I think you can definitely help people practice it and right. develop it. Um, and I think that comes through coaching behaviors. Mm -hmm. And so I think that you can coach by means of like... Uh, Use these words, not those. Sending, yeah, yeah, yeah. Setting clear expectations for a start. Using things like you know, a quality program mm. to teach how you, how you, how you would like your staff to interact with your customers. Show what success looks like. Yeah, exactly. Show them what success looks like. Um, and then among that, obviously you have to describe the why you have to have, you, you can't just like prescribe a set of uh, a, a script, right? I right. mean, no, nobody's going to build the skills of empathy through a script. Mm -hmm. It's about kind of what you're coaching for is an understanding of the customer perspective as well. Mm -hmm. So from a, custom, from a customer service and support point of view, I think that's it. I think that's what you coach. It's, it, it's the behaviors that encourage looking at this problem from the customer's shoes. Right. And I think that's really important, right? Do you, Pardon? Yeah. Do you look from shoes? Do you look from someone else's shoes? Or I, do think you look it, through someone I think else's it works. Shoes? I think it works. Put yourself in someone's I mean, shoes or look from their perspective, either yeah. one. But yeah. so I think that, yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely agree and I, I sound off on everything you're saying. Um, I do like to ask just because I think, you know, especially with people like yourself, um, because you're senior and you've kind of seen so many people hack it, I'm really interested in these different perspectives. And perhaps there will be a day that someone says, to hell with empathy, you don't need that. Sociopaths all the way. 
you know, that's what I want to talk about. Sociopaths rule. Um, yeah. Well, they do. Um, <laughs> that's a whole other conversation. Um, <laughs> so I think uh, something we haven't really touched on thus far is, um, is Snowplow. And you are the head of support of Snowplow. And I know that you had like a senior management position before. Um, but how has it been for you to kind of take the reins and, and call the shots from the top and, and really build out that process from the bottom? And how has your experience in your career influenced the way that you've done that? Are there particular things that you focused on or things that have been particularly obvious to you? I know it's a very technical role again, so let me preface that by saying. Um, uh, but yeah, so mm-hmm. where would you see those those influences? It sure is. I'm not sure I call the shots from the top. I think I, <laughs> yeah, I may have put you up for failure in that regard. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want yeah, this. Um, no, it's not. <laughs> my time has come. Yeah. No. <laughs> Just, uh, no I, That's I, what you're known as. <laughs> <laughs> Why do all my conversations end up like this? Um, I, think, <laughs> I think that... Um, so when when I arrived at Snowplow, um, Snowplow is uh, in that period of rapid growth that comes with a lot of pain, right? It comes with a lot of readjustments needed, and uh, I think that um, so yes, I, I had a good deal of management experience, and and all of that management experience has been remote. So I've been leading support teams for well nearly 17 years i guess and um almost all of that has been remote oh i didn't know that that's super interesting yeah yeah uh oh you learn something don't you every day um yeah i (laughs) yeah it's um so i think i think that um that was one of the things that i i think has fed into over the years, like it's really kind of, I, I, I have a really clear set of beliefs about what makes good remote support, what makes mm-hmm. for a good, dis, like a, a, a high functioning distributed team. I'm not terribly theoretical about it. I'm a bit gut instinct about mm-hmm. it, but I think that's just because I've developed it from the, like from days when almost nobody was remote. So like you, I'm sure you could find 10 people now who could talk to you much more eloquently a theoretical and philosophical level about remote work um but i've just kind of got i've developed over the years a a, a feel for what works and what doesn't right you know and um and snowplow's team is entirely remote interesting um and so that was one of the big attractions for me because i want to stay remote personally mm-hmm. um i've i'm i'm completely embedded in and believe in this way of life mm. and the opportunities it gives us and the opportunities it gives organizations. Mm. So when I was looking for a role like Snowplow, that was very high up the list, right. that it was a remote team. Awesome. Well, let's dig into that because yeah. I find that super interesting. So where to start? Um, since you've had so much experience doing distributed work, like what would you say? I know you said it's mostly on gut feeling, but what would you say are those things that you really looked to implement in order to kind of set up successful distributed work because i know that so many people are struggling with this right now yeah it's um i think it's um it it pretty much comes down to two things that i think you can practice in and should practice in multiple different ways the first thing is really high levels of communication Mm -hmm. um i never ever see a conversation 
as a waste of time. Mm. I just, I, I, I don't actually, I think I, and, and now in this last year where everyone's on Zoom, um, it's interesting to me that people are kind of hurrying to get away from Zoom because I, this, for me, that conversation time is really important. Yeah. And I think that for me, actually, not much work happens on Zoom. We make some quick decisions, mm -hmm. but mostly what happens is kind of inspiration and shaping and social connection, which is super important. Right. Um, so it's about high levels of communication and, and video calls are one of them. Video calls give you that social element that mm -hmm. you need to be inspired by people and to make connections with people. But communication happens in all sorts of different ways, of course. Right. Mean, communication on Slack mm -hmm. is, achieves a different thing. Um, but communication also happens in a JIRA card or in a ticket or, you yes. know, these all different ways that we communicate and signal to our teams what we're doing. Um, so it's high levels of communication. It's kind of, I, I, I'm a great believer in encouraging my team to work out loud, like tell me, but also tell everyone else on the team what you're doing mm -hmm. because otherwise we have no visibility. And when you're in the dark and you're uninformed, um, it's quite exclusionary, yes, I think. So, so I encourage lots of conversations. I have one to ones, and I as for as long as humanly possible, I will try and have one to ones weekly with my team. We have a lot of small breakout sessions scattered through the week as well, where mm. because they're distributed, um, I mean, at the moment, my team runs from west coast u s to Siberia. Damn. There's no way I'm going to get them all in the same room yeah. at the same time of day, not without someone being awake in the middle of their night. Mm -hmm. um, so we do a lot of small breakout sessions where I, I get two or three of them together mm -hmm. and just to keep these little mini groups going. Um, but what then, of course, happens is you end up with a different sort of fragmentation where you end up with little mini groups, mini teams within a team. So yeah. then it's finding finding these other communication tools is like really super important to me. So mm. encouraging that working out loud is part of maintaining that high level of communication across the team. I hope to encourage a culture in my team where no one feels that they don't know somebody else or somebody mm. else's work just because they happen to live on the other side of the planet. Right. I feel the same way. Um, and the other part, the, uh, the second strand that I mentioned, sort of hand in hand with working out loud, but it's, it's, um, it's more about leaving a trail of artifacts behind you. It's, it's have, having things that persist. It's having, like some of those are conversations, but because they're happening in a JIRA card, mm. they are recorded. Yes. So anyone can arrive at it and yes. understand what's happening. Uh, decisions are recorded there and uh, processes are captured and uh, um, it's not for social connection but it's more about connecting up the work yeah. in a way when when it when work persists when work doesn't happen in zoom or in slack it persists and anyone can join in and contribute mm -hmm. so you you never feel excluded that's the ideal right right um so there's so much there i'd love to dig into so um you mentioned the, the the communication. That's 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 where I think I'm going to start. So if I read you correctly, you're kind of tending more towards small groups of people communicating often in short spurts, focusing more on let's make some decisions and let's have a chat 
rather than sticking yourselves in large groups with extended calls where people are kind of hanging around. Yeah, yeah. I there's no point in being in a conversation you're not an active part of. Yes. Actually, I think. Um if all of my team happened to be based within five miles of each other, we would get together in bigger groups. This isn't intentional mm. purely on the basis of numbers. Yeah. Um it's it's a way of 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 maintaining those social connections because of our distributed nature, because mm-hmm. of the breadth of our distribution. Um, I try now. My again, I think my team will laugh in in my face if I tell them that I told you this. But I try and keep those meetings short. <laughs> <laughs> You're British. I mean, we can only try. You know, we can try. We have yeah. so many. By words, the time you've talked about the weather for three quarters of it, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so um i schedule like pure like to get hyper operational about this i schedule 20 minutes Mm. four times a week with my team so effectively two ends of the day for me Mm. a couple of times a week honestly those sessions can run to 30 minutes (laughs) and if if we're if we're deeply engulfed in something you know 35 40 minutes but that's a bit long in the tooth and I really try and they do, they do hold me to account. Um, they're, they're not afraid of saying these meetings are getting a bit long again. You know, <laughs> we're, we're, we're seeing quite a lot of each other now. <laughs> I like that. We, yeah. we do actually have work to do, you know, because work doesn't happen in meetings. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> and I, I do, I, I promise guys, if you're listening, I am trying <laughs> to stick to the 20 minutes. Matters. The intention matters for sure. The intention matters. And I hit it more than I used to. Right. Um, and I lapse sometimes. It depends. I mean, so much depends on the nature of the work. Absolutely. Week, some um, conversations require more time. There's just no two ways about it. Exactly. And sometimes it's nice to just chat for a little bit longer than you otherwise would. So for those 20 minute exactly. chats, are you kind of breaking people apart at the outset of the call? Are you starting like all at once and then doing breakout runs? Like what's the what's the story there? Because it's kind of are you trying to like shuffle people around so that you always got different people with different people and different people are chatting? All I can do, I, I, I don't want people to work outside their normal working hours. Yeah. So I just pick spots in the calendar. I literally look at my support team's shift schedule mm-hmm. and, and think, right, there's three people together there. I'll grab them mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I'll, we'll have a little conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, it's, it's that simple. Right. It's like, where can I get the most people together? Cool. And it's always operational um, it's for a chat a lot of the time? like um, A bit of a mix of both. I'm sorry if we're digging into too much detail here. I just think it's people really want to no, know like how fine. to actually do this. And, and we've had a few people talk about it, but yeah. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. I think that, um, so I do chat and I give everybody the opportunity to chat. At Christmas, I won an award at Snowplow for the chattiest snowflower. I will just slip that in. I mean, I'm not surprised. <laughs> you're a podcaster, <laughs> you're English. Terms with it. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to happen, Charlotte, you know? It is. I'll get true. the same. It genuinely. I'll get the same award. It's okay. We're in the same boat. I'm as bad as it you. It genuinely took me a week. It genuinely took me a week to come to terms with that. <laughs> really? You were that surprised? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. I know. I was like, anyway. Um, <laughs> so I, I will always encourage chatter. But mm-hmm. um, when I arrived at Snowplow, the team were getting up in the middle of the night to have a one hour meeting every week. Um, and, you know, it, it was, it, they were trying to achieve such a lot in that meeting. It was so precious, you know, mm. and that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to 
dissipate the pressure for a start. I also wanted to get people back in their beds and only working in working hours because I think that's super important. I think even though, I mean, I'm a night owl, <laughs> I don't sleep. So um, I, this is very much don't do as I do, but just do as I say and go and get some sleep. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I really encourage, I really, really want my team to get away from the work as mm -hmm. much as possible. I don't need to bring them back in when they're not, when, you know, they, that's their time. I've got to respect that. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> um, so what I tried to do when I arrived quite quickly was to take the pressure off that one hour. Mm -hmm. And that was really important to me that the work didn't happen in that one hour when some people were tired and it was some people's day off and, mm -hmm. you know, and, and by breaking it out, by building this greater culture of like artifacts and like conversations that happen that are self-documenting, mm -hmm. um, those meetings, we were able to break out and not feel disconnected. We were able to shift into this pattern of, you know, four meetings a week, um, which worked for a while um, until we kind of started, you know, I, I can't. I'm not clear what the point was, but there was a point where I realized we were struggling for things to talk about, which was mm. weird to me because A, I am the chattiest snowplower after all. Right. And B, that um, there's so much work to do. Um, and I, I couldn't put my finger on it for a month or two. And then I, I, I think then I realized it was just a lack of focus and that I, I had to be the one to bring that focus to those sessions. So. To come back to your question about operations, we always have time at the start of the meeting and I will always encourage um, my team to chat about whatever they want. There's always time to talk about the weather if they want it, if they want to. None of them are British, so that doesn't come up very often. But um, on the other hand, um, you know, we do have a kind of how's it going, how's the day been? Mm -hmm. um, and, then the, and then there is an opportunity for them to bring a topic. Is there anything you want to talk about first mm. before we get into the focus that I'm going to bring if we can't think of anything to talk about? Mm. Um, and so I've labeled in the calendar, I've labeled our team meetings, all of these little mini breakout sessions. Um, we have a rolling kind of five themes. So over the course of a few weeks, everyone gets in a meeting on that has a different point of focus. Right. Um, and so... <laughs> I will do things like one of the one of our themes is backlog bashing. So we will we will open the meeting, we'll have that little kind of how are you doing? How's the day? Is there anything you want to talk about? If not, let's look at the queue. Yeah. That's the focus for that meeting. We have another session where we talk about OKRs and projects and another session where we just begin to like socialize metrics in the team, things like that. Um and much to their alarm, I put a, a breakout session theme on there of you present which is where they bring their work and talk about their work. And we record it and we share it with the rest of the team who aren't in that breakout meeting. Mm -hmm. um, it's early days for this pattern, if I'm honest, but so far it's working quite well. We never have, we, we're nev we never feel unfocused. We always have something to talk about because the theme sets the conversation. If there's nothing, if there's no burning bridges, right. we always have that to fall back on. And that's how it works. Cool. Well, thank you for sharing. Mm -hmm. And I think that that advice is really valuable because, you know, something that we've mentioned on the podcast multiple times thus far is that this distributed work phenomenon has been pushed upon us all. And some of us have had experience like yourself. And I think everyone really appreciates 
hearing these solutions because it, it's kind of jarring in a way, you know, we're used to doing work in a particular way and our experience doesn't necessarily lend itself to distributed success. So I think it's very confusing and kind of disarming in a way. Um, and mm. I think a lot of confusion results from it. So thank you for sharing. And honestly, I'd love to have you back and just to talk about that some more because I mean, my background, I haven't really spoken about it, is, um, is one of social science. I'm very interested in human behavior and the drivers of it. And trying to analyze this new social space has been, A, very interesting, but very humbling because I find that a lot of the sort of psychological and sort of notions derived from behavioral economics kind of don't really apply now that our social environments are so how should I say, at arm's length and impersonal. And I think also it's very difficult mm -hmm. to speaking from a personal standpoint to manage conversations and meetings sometimes when I can't just have a chat to the people that are going into the meeting beforehand and to say, hey, like, what's your opinion? Hey, what's your opinion? Hey, what's your opinion? And then turn up to that meeting having already kind of included all that information. I think personally, that's something that I've really noticed. It's just very difficult for me to manage conversations. Ironically enough, as a podcaster who does all the podcasts online, <laughs> It's difficult to manage those conversations, you know, and set expectations and actually get the work done. But something I found really, really interesting and maybe one of the take home points from this section uh, of the podcast is that you said you don't really aim to get work done in those meetings. And I think actually that's such an important piece of advice because really, like if I look at the, the pain that we're experiencing, and I think Kaiser does a very good job actually, um, but the pain we're experiencing, I think is exactly that. It's that we have these meetings and we want to get things done and we want to make progress, but it's like just ethereal, you know, it's like, well, you know, we're trying to brainstorm, we're trying to do this or that. And it's just difficult. So that I think is very relieving. And I think taking that pressure off really just is like a breath of fresh air for people involved. So I think that's a really, really valuable take home point. So thank you. Um, but we've come it's a uh, 57 minutes, if you believe it, Charlotte, it's gone by, it's flown by, wow. it always does. But I think especially this episode has been super chatty and funny and really jovial. I really, really appreciate that. Um, is there something you'd like to leave the listeners with? Is there something that we didn't cover on the show that you'd like to quickly chat about? Um, you should definitely plug your podcast, um, by the way. Um, but yeah, just open the Oh, thank you. you. I, I'll do that in a second. Yeah, thank you. I will. Uh, and thank you for having Welcome. me, by no the problem. way. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, um, as someone who has, as someone who has a, 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 a certificate being chatted, it's, it's been a pleasure to... My certificate is pending. <laughs> I, I actually have a certificate and a trophy. You, the, the listeners won't be able to see, but I've got a trophy, a star. Oh, I a, see it. I see of, it. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure it's real gold, but that <laughs> says friendly snowplower. I like that. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I think that, um, I think really what I would just like to spend a minute talking about is just that pressure that you talked about. Um, as everyone's moved from offices to remote, I think that people who are used to working in offices assume that you have to translate exactly the office paradigm into a remote space, mm. that you work in the same way remotely. Right. And I think that when you and I think that's the point of relief people maybe are seeking or needing. Like they the simple fact is you cannot replicate the way you behave in an office at home you can't there there are two entirely different ways of working um and one i think for me it's once you realize that um and once you kind of 
give yourself over to that realization and accept it. The pressure is gone and you find ways of doing things that are different, but they're not they're not lesser because of it. You just do them differently. Yes. So so as I said, yes. I think it's about I think it's about understanding that not a great deal of work is going to happen on a Zoom call. I mean, you might be able to show some visuals or something. And, and I, for me, it's more like the the ideation. It's an opportunity for ideation on Zoom calls or or for a demonstration. But it's mm-hmm. not no real work for me and my team happens in Zoom calls. It's it's about you know um, making those connections that allow you to fire off each other. It's not real work. It's inspiration and connection more than anything. Um, mm. and, and the other thing I would say is just, just something that I said earlier, which is just communicate, um, somebody who I've had the pleasure of following very closely on LinkedIn for a long time now, Laurel Farah put this in a webinar that I watched of her, that she was on years ago. She said, um, over communication in a virtual world is just communication. Mm. And, um, and and I think therefore it's yep. like don't be afraid to communicate. You, you know, it is actually necessary. It greases the the work yep. because you don't, and it's just yep. a different way of working. So it's kind of actually being prepared. You actually have to have a sense of like putting yourself out there, <laughs> which is very strange as an intro- yep. introvert yep. working from home. You have to put yourself out there a bit more. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, a way to, to to meet that is that there's a lack of information that's communicated through body language, through the interaction of like the social hierarchy and, and the way that people kind of socialize and, and all of that information is lost when you're distributed. So there, there is a real lack of communication that needs to make, be, made, uh, be made up with audible and written communication, right? I think that's the way I would liken it. And, and that, you know, you definitely feel that gap and that is you know, the the thing that's probably responsible for the, the Zoom calls not necessarily being mm. responsible for a lot of work getting done. Um, so yeah, Lauren, uh, not oh, Lauren, oh, you were speaking about <laughs> yes. Lauren, you're Charlotte. Laurel, Sarah. Yeah, yeah. Um, no Charlotte, worries. thank you so much for joining. Yeah, uh, you should link her to mm. me, actually. I find that really interesting, by the way. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, this was such a pleasure. I really had fun. This was just a very, very nice and pleasant conversation. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And thank you for sharing your insights as well. And I th- I hope that the people at home not only are inspired by your story, but take home some of the lessons about distributed work, because obviously it comes from a wealth of experience. And I think the way you communicate yourself is, is not cocky. Uh, it's, you know, it's funny and yeah, well, approachable. Thank you so thank much, you Sebastian. Much. Um, and I, I would just add that um, if people do want to reach out to me on LinkedIn or anything, I, I'm always available. So I'm Charlotte Ward. If you search for me and Snowplow, you'll find me. Um, or you can find me at customersupportleaders.com, which is where I host my own podcast about support leadership. So uh, lots of insights going on over there as well. But no less or more than on this. And congrats for 10,000 downloads. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, yeah, just at the start of this year. Yeah, it's exciting times. It's a thing I love. So thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for having me. You're welcome. Thank you for being here. Oh, my God, I'm melting at the end, honestly. Thank you so much for joining us, everyone. Have a wonderful day. See you later. This podcast is made possible by Kaizo. Kaizo is a performance management platform that helps customer support teams be more productive and engaged. If you're a Zendesk user, go to kaizo.com and book a demo today.